This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. This episode of Marketing Trends features an interview with Andrew Lockhart, Senior Director of Product Marketing at Unisys. On this episode, Andrew talks all about leveling up your analyst relations strategy as a product marketer. It's a really great episode for anyone looking to take their analyst relations up a notch. A big thank you to Andrew for coming on the show. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have in studio, Andrew, how's it going? Great. How are you doing? It's great. I'm excited to chat today. You know, you wrote a presentation, how product marketers can level up their analyst relations. And it's something that I think a lot of the CMOs and marketing leaders that we talk to either know a lot about or don't know a lot about. And there's so many ways that product marketing can really have an interesting lens. So we're going to share that with our listeners Excited to get into it. But first, how did you get into marketing in the first place? Oh, boy. I came out to uh, Silicon Valley after uh, four years on Wall Street. I'd always been a computer nerd, wanted to get into computers, wasn't a programmer anymore. So I thought maybe I can try my hand at marketing, got an MBA, and then uh, landed a a nice job at HP and uh, got to do a variety of, of partner marketing, product management types of activities and said, okay, this is what I want to do. And but I also knew in the back of my mind I wanted to work at startups eventually someday. And what about your current role at Unisys? So um, I uh, head up a team of uh, product marketers at Unisys focused on the security solutions portfolio at Unisys. It's a fairly new thing for Unisys to be into. We've got a team of about five people, classic product marketing, go-to-market strategy, content development, messaging and positioning, all the sales enablement. And then... You had the misfortune uh, of meeting uh, Mr. Matt Trefero, who we had on, gosh, what feels like many moons ago. That had to be about 80 episodes ago. How did you meet Matt? Yeah, so I was uh, in my fourth year at HP and thinking, okay, I'm ready to do a startup. And it was just synchronicity. A guy I'd gone to high school with, Eric Del Sesto, called me up and said, hey, did I want to come join the startup where he was one of the co-founders? They needed somebody to do product management, went in for the interviews, and that's when I met Matt. Immediately it clicked, and that was Wink Communications, Interactive TV. And uh, so I met Matt in 1995, and we worked together for several years there at Wink. That's crazy. And the world turns, and now both guests on marketing trends. Um, (laughs) So let's get into analyst relations. We've talked a little bit about it on the show, not, not for a while. We've had analysts on the show. We've talked to AR. I'm curious how you first got into the AR piece of of product marketing. Yeah. So after a number of years doing product management, product marketing, then running all of marketing at some startups, it became clear to me that the normal motion in marketing involves creating a lot of content, the infographics and white papers and data sheets. And that's sort of necessary, but I think a lot of marketers fall into a trap of just seeing those kinds of assets because you control it. You can just sit down and type something up, but that's your company saying nice things about your company. And I think what's missing there is the credibility, right? And, and this is incredibly obvious, but sometimes, again, it's, you can fall into this trap. I think you need to get outsiders to say nice things about your company and your product. And I think broadly speaking, that's get it, get your customers to testify. On your yeah. Behalf, right. So have a really strong customer reference program and get those case studies written and the, and the, the, the videos. And then the other group is the influencers, the industry analysts. And I had seen it done pretty badly at some of the early startups I was at or CEOs or CMOs who kind of didn't see that value. 
analyst relations can take a while to build up. Uh, it's not something that's immediately under your control. Yeah. Right? If you decide you want to spend money. Arguably, on it's never under your control. <laughs> exactly. But you can you can try. You know, the old saying, luck is the residue of planning. Right. Yeah. So you don't just luck into showing up in an analyst report. There's some preparation that goes into that. It was when I was at Postini uh, in the early and mid 2000s, and I was hired to run product marketing and later took over all of marketing. I had the great good fortune to work with a guy who was an absolute pro at, he was running our PR and AR, a guy named Marty Tactile. And he just opened my eyes. It was a revelation just how product marketing and analyst relations team up and the impact it can have on a company. So again, it was, there's no credibility. There's awareness and there's consideration. There's information and all those other assets we create. But especially at a startup, I need some credibility. I need people saying, yeah, this company's for real. The product works. And so I sort of became a convert to the importance of uh, AR. Well, I think too, you see, once you do get one of those credentials, how much you use it then, right? It's kind of like, you know, the tail wagging the dog a little bit, because if you don't have any of those credentials, you spend a lot of effort, you know, to get there. But then once you do, then you now have this marketing asset that like, hey, I need to make sure every single person knows this. That's exactly right. And, and I've, I've had this conversation with several CEOs who have hired me where they say, okay, you know, how much budget do you need to do AdWords or to do content syndication? And I always say, hang on a second. The first dollar I spend, I want to spend on analyst relations. And if that means buying a report or getting a subscription to one of the analyst firms, because if you start doing it, you get everything that a, 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 an early stage startup needs, right? So first I get the awareness, right? If the, if the analyst writes about my product or my company, it's out there. Now people know my company exists. I get the credibility. It doesn't have to be favorable coverage. Neutral coverage is good enough, but at least they've put me on the map. I've got a new piece of collateral, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna license the reprint rights to that report and give yeah. it to the sales guy because it's usually just the one sales guy and say, here you go. Hand this out. I'll, I'll give you white papers down the road, but you've got something that says we exist and how we fit into a market. And I'm going to get leads. People are going to visit the website because they read about me, read about my company in this analyst report, and they're going to visit the website. So I'm going to get web visits. I'm going to get people filling out the form to download my white paper. So I get everything. So yeah, I think there's a lot of leverage in making that investment to show up on the radar of the analysts. So let's say you start spending your first dollars on this, what's the like flash to bang on starting to see the impact versus then the long-term impact? Yeah. So you made the comment earlier, it's not totally under our control and it, and it isn't. I'm at the mercy of whatever the, the editorial calendar is, so to speak, at the analyst firm. The good news is a lot of the, the major firms like Forrester and Gartner they don't just write one report every year about your product category. They've got a variety of different kinds of uh, research reports. So there's usually something coming in a few months' time. So almost no matter when I get that first meeting and explain, here's what this startup company does, and here's the product category that I think we're in, you don't necessarily have to wait forever for something to come out. And I'll, I'll give you an, a couple of examples. When I was at Postini, we were doing email security, anti-spam, antivirus. About three months before I joined the company to head up product marketing, Gartner had written their first market overview for anti-spam. Mm -hmm. There was something crazy, like 100 anti-spam startups that had all popped out in a couple of years. So Gartner had to write something. And basically they said, look, there's the appliances and there's the software. And you, know, you need to look at the catch rate, the false positive rate, the end user features for getting things out of quarantine. And literally the last paragraph on the last page, they said, and oh, by the way, there's these three funny companies that are doing this as a service. And this is, this is 2003 before we had the term SaaS or service. cloud. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we called it a managed service at the time ourselves. And the Gartner recommendation was, you might consider one of these three companies for the next year as a stopgap until you choose one of the real solutions to standardize. <laughs> so they ghettoized us. So... I joined Postini. I find out about this report. I find out that indeed more than 80% of the market, there's no way they're going to consider putting something like this in the cloud. The, the mentality is completely on-prem. Again, this is 2003, 2004. Yeah. But 
you know, this was what the company was founded on was to do stuff to email in the cloud or as a service. And all of the marketing at, at the company had moved away from that because they were getting beaten up over the fact it's a service. So the marketing collateral was all catch rate, false positive rate features. It was all me too. It looked exactly like every other vendor. So I had to kind of get the company to go back to its roots and say, no, 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 you have a really good argument here for why this should be done as a service. And in fact, our marketing message was, you're crazy if you don't do this as a service. Yeah. And we very quickly outlined that story that we could make uh, that argument to an analyst. Mano a mano, have a credible conversation about, here's the four or five benefits to doing this as a service. And we got those meetings with Gartner and Forrester and the other analysts, and they started nodding their heads going, huh, okay, that makes sense. And then they want to know that your cloud service is built on something solid and you're not going to go down and take everybody's email with you. And so we had to kind of prove it. We really had to open the kimono. Later in 2004, maybe by mid-year, this product category was so hot, Gartner felt like they had to do a magic quadrant. Hmm. Like that, that's, that's fast. I mean, nobody was expecting that. You know, they put about 20 vendors in the report. Four of us were in the leader quadrant and Postini was the upmost and rightmost of all of those. So we had a compelling story. If you don't have a compelling story, right, nothing, nothing in marketing is easy or works well. But if you've got it, engage with the analysts. And sometimes you're lucky and their calendar is, hey, you're suddenly prominent and in the public eye within months. Don't count on that. I, you know, if you're running marketing or product marketing, don't go to your CEO and promise that because you don't know, right? It could take longer, but it can happen pretty quickly. It, again, it's just a matter of you got to show up, be in constant conversation with those analysts. The way of framing it and, and positioning that and kind of the goes beyond that, the, the category creation type stuff, a lot of that messaging sounds like the same thing that you would say to early adopter customers anyways. If this is so new that someone's signing up for your service, they're going to compete with, uh, or your product is competing with 80% of the market that's doing something totally different anyways. So it kind of sounds like you would need all of those talking points to begin with. So when you're doing this, who is pitching the analyst? Is like Andrew pitching them? Is it sales? Like, is it the CEO? Like, how does that? Yeah. So my case at Postini, I was it. I was that spokesperson having all those meetings. There were one or two times we brought in the founder, one of the two co-founders, the technical guy, but it wasn't really, he wasn't fascinated by being the face of the company. So I ended up in my time at Postini handling something like a thousand press and analyst interviews oh, wow. <laughs> over the span of three years because I enjoy it. I guess I'm pretty good at it. And again, I, I had seen early on, especially working with this AR guy, the power that this had, the fact that we were in a magic quadrant, what, six months after I joined the company. And again, luck that Gartner had that report planned, but we got in front of them and we told this story. And, but your point is right. When Postini was founded, they had these points in mind and they somehow lost it because the sales weren't going well. Too many people were just hanging up on the sales guy saying, yeah. service, what are you, crazy? And so they kind of hid that feature of this of the solution well that's the headline you can't hide it and so if you're all your data sheets and white papers about your catch rate and your false positive rate you sound like all the other vendors and eventually that sales prospect is going to ask what are the system requirements and then you say well there aren't any it's a service and they hang up on you anyway so sales freaked out because i said we're going back to the the original messaging which is this is a service and that's good for you and 80% of the leads we're generating right now are going to go away. Yeah. And sales never likes to hear that. But I said to them, yeah, but all the leads we're giving you now, 80% of them aren't really leads. We're all pretending that they're leads. And you guys are wasting your time. Their productivity was terrible because four to five phone calls led to a hangup. You know, after some long conversation about all the other goodness at Postini. And it was like, well, let's just stop doing that. Let's stop wasting your time and that prospect's time because he's not a prospect. Was there a point where your senior leaders looked at you and just said, we're just wasting our time on this? Like, this isn't worth it? And it doesn't have to be at that particular company, but just any time it's like, hey, how much effort are we doing to get, you know, a dot in, in, in the magic, magic quadrant? Or is it not that way at all? No, I've never had that problem. It, usually the problem is sort of the opposite, which is, 
I've, I've worked for some senior leaders who think that analyst relations is get into the magic, the Gartner magic quadrant for our category. And that's all it is. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to worry about any other analysts, which completely ignores the fact that you don't just say, oh, let's talk to Gartner. What you do is you talk to your buyers and find out who do they pay attention to. Yeah. And the answer might not be Gartner or even Forrester, right? It might be some niche analyst firm or it might be some guy with a blog. So I've, I've had leaders who just are like, get us into the magic quadrant without the context or the strategy of, well, is that the right place for us to be? And by the way, the people who are making inquiry calls to Gartner, they're reading all those other research reports on the space and they might be reading Forrester. So, I mean, it's like anything else in marketing. If you just come in and start doing stuff without learning, really learning who the buyers are and everything you need to know about them, then, you know, you're wasting your time. I love that idea of, you know, just talk to the, talk to the buyers. Like what a great, what a great piece, not only for marketing, but for marketing to get that refinement from sales, right? Yep. Like, like have them sleuth that stuff out. Yeah. I mean, so that's one of the things I did in my you know first few weeks at Postini was I went and go sit next to the inside sales guys and plug headphones into and listen to the sales calls because I wanted to hear what we were saying and finding out, well, we're not saying the right thing during the sales call, but hearing the objections and, you know, where this is not working. That's just one of the many things that I think marketing, all of marketing needs to do, right? If you don't understand the buyer and we spend all this time talking about buyer personas and it's usually a job title or a vertical but I think it gets lost. Yeah, but who are the influencers? And a good AR person brings that to the table, right? They'll make sure that they are spending their time managing relationships with the right analysts at the right firms. Product marketing, the rest of marketing needs to understand that. You don't just run to Gartner because. So I'm curious that senior leaders have said like, hey, we just want to be on the magic, magic quadrant, for example, because... It seems to me like at a certain point, this is just like, again, out of your hands of like where they put you. How much influence do you have? I mean, how much influence can you have on that? All you can do is make sure that the analysts that you're talking to have a really full, complete picture of what your solution does and how it's positioned. I mean, all this, all of marketing is so much easier when the offering really works. Yeah, no, I, and, exactly. You know, right? yeah. And, and, and thank God, you know, the posting, it worked. It was good. It really was good. Repetition is a part of it. I've learned that it's usually about the fourth meeting with an, a specific analyst that they actually remember what my startup company does, right? Because they're talking to so many other vendors and all the buyer inquiry calls they're taking and they're overwhelmed. You know, so by that fourth meeting, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember you. You're Andrew. You're at Postini and you guys are doing anti-spam, right? It's like, yes, good. I'm glad you've got it memorized. Yeah, no kidding. You know, so you have, so you have to build on it. And, and one of the comments I make that, again, I think people overlook is that word relations in analyst relations. It's about a relationship. Yeah. It's not a, a hit and run once a year. Hey, we'll fill out the, the form for the magic quadrant and then see you next year. That's not a relationship. Well, and I think, you know, the inverse of that, of like public relations, right, which is like inherently your relationship with the public is something that, and and we could talk about AR versus PR, maybe, maybe you don't think it's versus, but it's this idea that analysts have a one-to-one direct correlation with where people are looking for products and services for PR getting mentioned in the news. Yeah, that might be nice. It, it's a good thing to be able to list at the bottom of your website as as seen in, you know, TechCrunch, uh, you know, New York Times, things like that. You know, and maybe that's an equally successful metric to certain folks. I just don't see that as a sales enablement tool. Like, hey, us being mentioned in an article by New York Times is nowhere near the analysts are writing about us. Yeah, I tend to agree. And again, if if it's an early stage startup, you'll take anything you can get, right? Totally. And if yeah. that's, you know, a journalist writes about you uh, or quotes somebody in your company in the context of a larger story, I'll take it. But yeah, it's not the same amount of leverage. And part of that is the people reading that story, a lot of them may not even be remotely close to being prospective sales targets for the company. Whereas with the analyst, it tends to be a more targeted audience. 
so yeah, I, you know, it, it's, it, you have to invest more time and build that relationship, but absolutely when you get mentioned in one of those reports, I think that it, your, your, your visibility and your credibility is much higher than some you know, general news story. Well, so, you know, I'll take an example that we've been dealing with recently where our company was mentioned, uh, in the injuries and horror, it's like 68 page report of like podcasting overview as a company that is essentially doing different things with business models and supporting customers, more like software, stuff like that. And it's one of those things we had no idea was coming, which is pretty cool to see, but like Andreessen is looking for technologies and things to invest in, right? So them writing about the industry like carries a lot of weight to people who are looking for cutting edge stuff. If that had then been picked up by, you know, news company DuJour, are our buyers there? Are our listeners there? Like, do we really care that much? Like, it's not necessarily a signal versus noise. Like having someone who is dialed in looking at the market, similar to, you know, obviously VCs are not, you know, analysts, but it's not too far off. Uh, it's, you know, maybe birds of a feather there. That's someone who's dialed into the market, who's looking at all of the different options out there. And I just think, again, this isn't PR versus AR necessarily, but I think as you're positioning this to your leadership to explain why this is not PR, this is something very, very different with the goal in mind that if we do get mentioned, this is now a, a sales enablement, a huge sales enablement right. asset. Right. Um, it changes our messaging. It changes our product marketing. Then that's a big, a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and getting back to your comment about, is it, you know, PR versus AR? It, it, it's not. In fact, there, there's one big similarity. And again, I think this is something that a lot of marketers forget about or overlook. And that is in our zeal to tell our story. And frankly, we want something, right? We want our startup mentioned in that magic quadrant or, or wave report or whatever it might be. So we're looking to get something and we forget to offer something to the analyst, right? What do we have to offer them? What can we do to make their lives easier, to yeah. make them better at their jobs? And it's the same with journalists. And in particular, there was this one uh, reporter for Network World when I was at Postini and, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of the journalist, they have to fill a certain number of column inches every day. And now that it's all on the web, that's an infinite number of column inches. And if all you do is blast press releases at them with all the usual bloviating, you're not helping them do their job, right? So we got in the habit of putting out, I think it was a monthly report on, you know, here's how much email was spam last month. Here were the top 10 viruses that people had attached to emails. And we'd put it out there but then if a journalist wanted to double click on some of that data, I'd get on a phone call and walk them through it. And this one reporter for Network World was like, this is great. And would start proactively calling us at Postini when news was breaking, you know, some horrible outbreak of some virus or spam. They would just contact us and get our comment on it because we were just making their lives easier on an ongoing basis. We were giving them stuff that they could actually use and convert into. Uh, content for their publication. And I think, I think it can be the same thing with analysts. If you go in with the mentality of how can I help you, dear analyst, that goes a long way in establishing that relationship. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great point. I would also add that the thing that we're looking for is the credential from the third party independent person who's saying that we are worth checking out or we are worth the money. And I guess to my point about the journalist stuff is that is more like brand play, less enablement. Because ultimately, and, and again, you might have a beat writer that is really, really dialed into a market. The whole industry publishing is not going that way really anymore right. anyways. Right. Breaking news is not really a thing as much as it used to be. So I just think as marketers look at this, that the way that they're thinking about this stuff is critically important. You're going to invest dollars either way. When we had, we talked to Ryan Benici, the CMO at G2 Crowd, you know, one of the things that I, I think it was uh, either him or Jay Bear that had said on the show that, you know, 90% of conversations, you know, happen via word of mouth or of, of sales, like are influenced by word of mouth. And you just look at things like if you can put together the right customer case studies, have the right G2 Crowd, you know, customer feedback and the analysts 
report saying, hey, we, we vet these, you're giving your salespeople a pretty rock solid thing that you can then do that. Because some people just look at one, some people look at you know just another. Other people are like, hey, we only care about your NPS. I don't care what everybody else says about you. Or I just care about you know how the sales process is and all of that. But you need to fight where you can win. And I think that you know, being able to figure out which of those things you can do well is is extremely critical. Yeah. And again, it's it's listen to the buyer. So I was talking to a CMO about six months ago and his company, they're a startup and they do cloud network routing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of dull stuff. And basically they sell it on AWS and they figured out that the, the current customers leaving reviews in AWS, it's the Amazon or the Yelp model. Oh, yeah. And, and the future buyers, that's what drives them is the, the earlier reviews. So he was telling me he was going to end his subscription to Gartner because the influencers for this particular buyer for this kind of offering was the other buyers. Yeah. And that's a really important insight that, you know, again, it's so easy for us in, in whatever our career is to kind of do what we've always done. Right. And, and this guy, he stopped and, you know, went and got the Gartner subscription and then figured out, like, that's not a good use of time or money for this particular product category. Well, yeah. And it, I think it just brings up the idea. And, and I guess why I'm so just interested in this whole piece is just because if we start layering back like the why behind, like, why should we be doing AR in general? And versus just influencer stuff. Like, for example, if like Naval Ravikant tweeted out about how much he loves your product, that has a huge lift in the tech industry right now. Like he's a big time influencer or someone or like Tim Ferriss or somebody like that or Kara Swisher. Like that's going to move the needle for you 100%. That's a big, that's a big deal. Especially if like independent third party, you know, saying that your stuff is good. That's a huge deal. So the idea of what influencers are we going after and how much sphere of influence do they have is a major decision point. And I think that any of these require a relationship. To your point earlier, the relations part is the most important part. So how did you do that? What were your essential elements of of the uh, AR strategy? How did you build those great relationships? So, you know, part of it early on when I'm, you know, joining a startup is, who are the right analysts, right? So again, get the buyer input on that. I was at one startup called Active Reasoning and we had a, a funny product. It didn't fit cleanly into any category. It was somewhere under governance, risk and compliance, but it was also a little bit IT operations and a little bit change management. And the company kind of cleared out the executive team and brought in some new people, including myself, to try to figure out how do we position this so it makes sense? And so I called up my Forrester sales rep and said, I've got this funny product here. I have no idea who at Forrester should be covering this. So the salesperson got me on a call with five analysts. And I said, here's what this thing does. Here's who we built it for. Here's what it does. It's a little of this, a little bit of that. It fills in gaps in these other product categories where there's blind spots. And they went away. And two days later, one of them raised his hand and said, okay, I'm going to cover you guys. You guys are fascinating. And in Forrester land, what you do fits most nicely under his coverage. So part of it is, who should you talk to? That's Who's going to get jazzed about what you're doing? Three months later, he mentioned active reasoning in one of his research reports yeah. about the larger set of products. And he mentioned this funny company called Active Reasoning with this funny little product. But suddenly, for the first time ever, there was an analyst acknowledging that we existed and in their way, talking to their buy side clients, how we fit into the Forrester taxonomy. So again, I got the, the reprint rights, handed it to our VP of biz dev, because at that point we kind of said, the mission here is sell this thing, right? Mm-hmm. This, it, it, we'd burned through a lot of VC money and it was just get on the map. So get on the map so that when our biz dev person and our CEO were knocking on doors of the big companies saying, hey, we're for sale, they could hand them this and say, and, those companies, it was Oracle and yeah. uh, HP and BMC. They could go, okay, A, I understand what you're doing because I see it in Forrester's taxonomy. B, I acknowledge that you exist and that you have some credibility because somebody at Forrester took the time to mention you. So that's just laying the groundwork. Who's the right person to talk to? 
the next step is is so obvious and easy that I, I almost hesitate to bring it up, but talk to them frequently. Yeah. Obviously, I've already belabored the point of don't make it a once a year event when it's the wave or the magic quadrant time. And maybe monthly is too often because you're going to wear out that analyst, but at least quarterly. But how do you do that? I mean, are you talking often. like, I don't know what the rules are. Uh, maybe you could say, but it's like, are you taking them out to coffee? Are you hopping on a video call? Like what, like what, so, what possible thing? Yeah. So, and this is where having a really strong AR manager comes in because this is really a big part of their job is just know what's the editorial calendar, what's coming up and find out if I'm going to be at an industry event to speak or to have a, uh, an exhibit, you know, booth or just to attend my AR partner is going to find out which analysts who are relevant to me are also going to be there. And yeah. can we get together? Right. And some of that's very obvious and formalized. Like when you go to black hat or RSA, you, you talk to the analysts, they're all going to be there. So you have to scramble to get on their calendars, but it, it, it can be the less obvious things. If the analysts are local, then yeah, I'm going to try to buy them a cup of coffee. But I think these days that's really hard. They're so busy. So it's, it's always, you know, WebEx or zoom or Skype or whatever it is for the most part, but just having the conversation one way or the other and doing it, you know, frequently. And again, have something to offer the analyst. If it's just, Hey, I just want to bend your ear for 30 minutes. You're not offering value. Totally. So are you giving them a preview of an announcement you're going to make? Do you have something new on your roadmap that's super exciting and you, you want to validate it with the analyst and get their feedback, things like that. I think you can usually find a good excuse to at least have that conversation every few months with those key analysts. What, so what are they looking for? I mean, like what does make their job easier? Having a really clear idea about who the competitors are in their product category with all of the marketing hype removed. That's one of the big differences in yeah. analyst relations from everything else in marketing is you can't talk to them like they're sales prospects. Totally. Got to strip out all that hype, all that stuff. Help them understand, like really, truly, what does your product do and not do? How do you think your offering is different and better from the competition? And can you back it up? Some of them want to see a demo. Yeah, I was just going to say, are you demoing this? Or are you doing like bake-offs? getting ready to do two hours of demos tomorrow morning with an analyst firm uh, for one of their major reports for one of the product categories that one of our offerings is in. And... Yeah. So I think more and more, there's an appetite on their part, not just to hear your spiel and talk to some of your customers, but see the demo because they can't be great at their jobs if they don't really, really understand all the offerings from all the competitors, right? How can they put their name on a report saying this dot is over here and that dot's over there unless they really get it. And so I think part of my job is make sure they really understand. And you just have to be willing to acknowledge, you know, there's maybe some feature areas where you're not as good as the competition. And I think a lot of marketers are afraid to say things like that. Yeah. Because you never say that in your data sheet or your white paper. No kidding. Yeah. But you have to develop the habit of saying that to analysts. Well, it's like, you know, when you have the, um, you know, the four column chart on your, on your sales collateral, that's like, you know, the gray check marks you have these 10 things with green check marks next to it and all of your competitors have like four or five or whatever it is. But there's like 10 more things that you didn't list on there, right? That they have check marks that you don't, you know, sharing that sort of stuff with them. Do you ever, you know, figure out ways to make sure, how would you make sure that they know what your defaults are or what your, what your product isn't as good at without, kind of like, you know, giving away the, giving away the ship. I think one approach to it is you do want to talk about what you're good at, but again, I try to frame it through the eyes of the buyers, right? This subset of buyers we see coming to us and becoming our customers because we're good at A, B, and C. And yeah, it's not comfortable saying, and by the way, features D, E, and F, we're kind of, you know, middle of the pack. I don't think there's any shame in that. And I think analysts are just going to respect you if you if you say that to them. Yeah, no, but, it's a good point. But, but 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 if you at least start with not all buyers love us for all reasons, focus on these particular buyers, whether firmographic, demographic, pain point, use case, whatever it is, they're the ones who really are coming at us hard because we solved this problem really well. And you can, you know, 
I guess, claim a niche, quote unquote, within your category without trying to, without looking niche Well, I think the other thing too is like, you know, be the first person to raise your hand and say like, hey, feature creep's a real thing. Like our CTO wanted to build this feature. Nobody really cares about it. We probably don't even need to have it. Not a big deal, right? Like that's not why people buy the product. Or maybe it's like one of the legacy things that we were talking about earlier. Some people just expect a certain amount of like, legacy things like, hey, we have this feature that is kind of a relic to the past. It's going to go away eventually. And like, yeah, ours is definitely not as good as our competitors, but that's because this isn't where the market is going. Right. You know, part of it is be able to explain in great technical detail some of the decisions you've made. Why is your offering different from the others? So mm. another example from Postini, this was a service. Email is store and forward, right? The sending Mail transfer agent, MTA, opens up a connection, gives you the email, you write it to disk, you say, thanks, I got it. You close the connection. And then doing this as a service, then we would turn around and you would open up the downstream connection to the, our customer server, say, hey, here's an email. That's what the RFC says, is that's how store and forward email works. Well, Postini did not do that because we had customers early on who one of their questions was always, what happens if you go down? What happens if a bomb goes off in the Postini data center? And the answer is, well, if we've accepted an email and written it to disk and sent the acknowledgement, we own that email. And when that server goes kablam, it's gone. There is no copy of that email. So Postini sat down and said, we're not going to ever be responsible for the email. So instead of being a mail relay, we were a mail proxy. So we'd hold open the incoming connection and say, hang on a second, open up the downstream connection to our customer pass the email to them. And then when they said, okay, we got it. It's on our hard drives. Then we'd say, great. And turn around to the sender and say, okay, we got it. So we never owned the, the message. And a lot of buyers in the early days went crazy. It's like, well, that's not the RFC. That's not how mail relays work. And we said, we know we did that on purpose. And so we knew it was going to be a thing. So we got out in front of that with the analysts and said, mm -hmm. we intentionally didn't adhere to the RFC because our initial buyers this was one of the things they really cared about was that hypothetical bomb going off in the data center. So once you can walk an analyst through that, any, whatever the technical distinction is with your offering, they're smart people and they're reasonable. They'll nod their head and go, okay, that makes total sense, right? And then again, the buyers will follow. Now the analyst can say, Postini has done a very clever thing here, blah, 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 blah. And then the buyers will be like, oh, that's why I should let go of my uh, complaint. And that's actually better for me, right? So I think that's part of it is, can you explain, you know, if you've made weird or radical choices in your offering, be able to explain it. And then when the analyst nods their head and agrees, you've got a megaphone now to tell that story. You know, you're at a company now that is much bigger than a startup. Yes. <laughs> How does AR change for, for those of our listeners who are in bigger companies, but that are either still trying to figure out AR or don't really know where to start, or maybe they are inheriting it or coming in as a new CMO of a bigger company that historically did it one way. I mean, is there some differences big? Obviously, there are differences big versus small. What, what would you say? So I'll give you a couple answers. The, the, the first part is, I think if you're in product marketing, no matter how big the company be thinking about analyst relations as a part of your mix, as part of the content mix. And, and what are you going to do to make that happen? How are you going to participate? And a big company might have all sorts of other subject matter experts who aren't in product marketing. They may be in the business units. And that's their job is to be an expert on whatever industry or whatever product category. And maybe they're the ones who are going to do the talking to the analysts, right? And that's great. My second answer for that is, I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask that question because <laughs> security is relatively new. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And I find myself doing a lot of the same things that I've done at startups, which is assume nobody's ever heard of me or, or even worse, people have heard of Unisys, but they don't think security. They think of other offerings uh, that the company's been doing for years. So I still have to kind of repeat everything three or four times. Yes, Unisys security. You heard that correctly. Yes, here's what's in the portfolio. Repeat it over and over to get people to go, okay, yes, I'm going to remember this now that you guys really are a security vendor. And so I'm, I'm still, I find 
pulling a lot of the same pages out of the playbook. How do you measure and define success for an AR program? Yeah, so I think one of the things is product marketing, I think, should treat it like anything else that you would put metrics on. It, it isn't just about, oh, I'm going to build a relationship and I'm going to have a lot of conversations and phone calls. So you have to have something to measure. And if your only measurement is, were we in the magic quadrant or not? That's not very effective because that's kind of binary and it ignores all the other reports and all the other analysts. So I think if, if you're just getting started in product marketing and working with your, your partner in analyst relations, you can start simple, like just keep track every month. How many meetings and briefings did we have mm -hmm. across the analysts? And, and as you look at your calendar, that can be a leading indicator. Oh, next month, I'm going to have four phone calls with analysts. And the month after that, I'm going to have six phone calls. The lagging indicators are things like, did we get mentioned in coverage that we think, A, the analysts were going to name vendors, and B, we thought were appropriate. And you do a postmortem. If a report came out and they named five of your competitors, but not you, try to figure out why. What was it about our story that was less compelling? And I don't mean, again, things like Magic Quadrant, where there's revenue thresholds and things like that. And sometimes, again, it's just you've got to get in front of that analyst over and over again, tell the story, really get them to understand it and believe it and, and see how you fit in. So just keep track of things like that. It can be very, very simple, but just don't treat it as some squishy activity, you know, because I keep sitting here talking about relationships. Yeah, but, you know, you can keep track of these things and build on it and always do better. Can't you not give gifts or something like that? Are there certain like things that you can't do or can do? I don't know what the actual rules of engagement are. I've never done anything like that. Yeah. Never. It's just, I think that's probably fraught with all sorts of uh, issues. And I suspect the analysts are, are told that they absolutely cannot under any circumstances. No, I, I know that. I, yeah, I'm trying to, I can't remember offhand, but I, I know that there's like a, a lot of rules around that stuff. But, and the reason why, why I asked that is, uh, you know, I mean, it's similar to like an MPS type of score of if you're easy to work with, again, it's not going to change their view of like where they move the dots necessarily because they're going to they're going to look at that independently. But it's a huge net positive to be a company that is easy to work with. That's not annoying. That's not abrasive. Yeah. And that treats their customers well. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, it is. It's it's. Uh... It's all about just being a decent human. And as I was saying earlier, try to think about it from their perspective. What's their job like? And what do they need from you? Again, we, we know what we want to get out of the analyst, and it can be quite mercenary at times, but I just think it's easier to work with them if you build the relationship and give them what they need to be great at their jobs. Well, and I just think it's about removing yourself from that outcome, right? Like just being processed base there and just saying like, we're going to do everything we can to try to get a favorable outcome. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, but you know, we're still going to do all the things that we can do. Yeah, exactly. I want to switch gears here on really quick and it doesn't have to be AR related, but do you have a, uh, a favorite campaign that you've been a part of? Yeah. I mean, I've been involved in so many at my last company mobilize, we were doing mobile software, but some of it was consumer oriented, but our customers were the mobile network operators. We ran a campaign uh, aimed at the mobile virtual network operators, the MVNOs, and it was really a breakthrough because we had been so focused on this small handful of the big MNOs that we were targeting, and we had had a blind spot, and we said, well, what about the MVNOs? And we thought about it and said, the pain that we're trying to solve, they have even more acutely than the big operators because they don't own the network, and they've got... The relationship with the subscriber, but they can't control the network. And so some of the things that, that our software could do around data management and security were really big. And so we just put together this campaign to reframe the way we talked about these mobile apps that we had to talk to them. And we put it out there and the response was really so much better than any, any other campaign we'd ever run. And there was no like genius involved, it was just, well, wait a minute, there's all these MVNOs out there and their problems are even worse. And, you know, we were kind of big game hunting, like let's yeah. go after the big mobile operators and these MVNOs are smaller, but they had the more acute pain. And 
yeah, it was really gratifying that you run a campaign and it does exactly what you want it to do. And people come to you and raise their hands and say, okay, tell me more about it instead of us just running after the big guys begging to be heard. Do you have a maybe a least favorite or a best learning experience? Yeah. Um, so I'd been at Postine for several years and was running all of marketing. And we had the idea to run one of these uh, conquest campaigns, you know, give us your anti-spam appliance and we'll give you a free year of our service kind of thing, a trade-in. Yeah. And it was a flop. And I think there were two reasons. Probably the most important was the market was still too new for people to be ready to like rip out the current solution, right? Everybody's still in their three-year contracts. Especially with security, part. right? Where yeah. it's like massive, yeah. you know, uh, saying that, hey, we just bought this two years ago. We're in year one of this contract. And we, I was that dumb a year ago. Because right. that's what you're saying, right? E exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So whether it's the, 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 the legal and finance people going, what are you talking about? We're under contract or, or the, the decision maker going, I'm not going to admit I made the wrong choice. Yeah. And part of it was, you know, we tried a tone in that campaign that was a little bit more aggressive. Like, let's go out and punch people in the nose. And that just didn't fit kind yeah. of the brand that we had somewhat inadvertently created at Postini. But, you know, by the time we got there, we kind of had reputation of we were straight shooters. We knew that our approach was weird and, and scary to buyers and that kind of, okay, we're going to act like used car salesmen almost. It's like it was the wrong tone and the wrong timing. All right, let's get in the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like B2B marketing with Pardot, you can go to pardot.com slash podcast, a great place to learn about Pardot and all things B2B marketing on the world's number one CRM. That is Salesforce. We love Pardot. Check them out. They're our exclusive sponsor and we love them. Lightning round questions. Andrew, are you ready? I am, I think. <laughs> number one. Do you have a hidden talent or passion? Um, I'm a little bit of a wine nerd. All right. Yeah, I, I've, I've made wine at home. You've made it. I've taken weekend classes at UC Davis. Yeah, I, I, uh, a number of years ago, really started to geek out on it. And that's, again, something else that Matt Trefiro can talk about is some of our uh, wine tasting adventures in Napa. Wait, so did you study viticulture? Yeah, just some weekend and evening classes. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a degree or anything. I just have some certificates of completing weekend classes. Oh, nice. Yeah. And you're a, a cow guy or a Haas guy. Yeah, that's where I got my MBA. Jeez. What a, a NorCal double dip there. Um, <laughs> favorite app on your phone that's the most fun? This is going to sound like I'm totally pandering, but I think probably podcast app. I, I don't really play games on my phone or do that kind of fun stuff. So yeah, that and, and iBooks, you know, I, I read anywhere, everywhere. And if it's on my phone instead of, you know, my, my tablet, so be it. What about a book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently that you thoroughly enjoyed? Uh, so I'm not going to pander. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's all good. But no, you guys are doing great stuff here. Um, you know, really kind of the, the amount of time I allocate for, uh, for audio. I love listening to uh, NPR's Marketplace yeah. because I'm usually not in front of a radio when that plays uh, on our local station out here. So uh, the podcast is usually how I consume that. Favorite vacation spot? Um, Italy. Last three years, my wife and I have gone to Northern Italy for two weeks and we're going to do it again this October. And uh, we just love it. We can't get enough. What are you... Most excited about for the future marketing? So I think that the folks at Pragmatic were early, but helped start a revolution in getting people to really think very clearly about product management and product marketing. I think marketers who are on the demand gen side, you know, have never really been in product and maybe don't get it and are really focused on the motions of generating the leads, right? design the campaigns, run the campaigns, and measure, measure, measure conversion rates. And I think the folks at Pragmatic started a revolution. And, and in the last few years, I see more and more um, .org type things popping up around product marketing. So there's product marketing community, which I've started to get involved in going to some of their events. Mm -hmm. I think there's product marketing world. And I think there's a third one. And I love the fact that 
product marketers are getting together, talking with each other. And now there's vendors that want to sell solutions and services to the product marketers beyond just pragmatic. And because I'm a big old product nerd and product management, product marketing, that's what I've been doing for so long. I'm delighted to see that there's been this recent explosion in really talking about how do you do product marketing well? What is your best advice for a first time head of marketing? I think I already covered it. It's really get to understand the buyers. Don't show up and think that you know who the buyers are. Talk to the salespeople because they probably know better than anybody else. The founders know that first product manager who helped achieve product to market fit. But get on the phone or get out of the office and talk to some of your customers. Talk to the people you try, that they had tried to win and, and didn't get. Really understand them. And as we've been talking, part of that is find out who are their influencers, but everything else right? Really, what are their job titles? What motivates them? What kind of content do they want to consume? Do you have a kind of product where people just don't want any marketing, just take them straight to the online self-serve live demo? Then do that. Build that first. The white papers can come later. But whatever it is, it has to start with the buyer. You're just wasting your time. Andrew, that's it. That's all we got. Thanks for coming in. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, we're just... uh excited to be able to get to share more AR thoughts. This was awesome and uh, excited to, to talk again soon. Any final thoughts? Um, no, just, you know, get out there and, and book a meeting with an analyst right now. Just do it. Love it. Five second rule. Get after it. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is created by the team at mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.